Biz Women Rock, episode 93. Welcome to the Biz Women Rock podcast. I'm your host, Katie Kremitzos, and this podcast features great stories from business women all over the world who have tons of information and inspiration for you on your journey. I'm so excited to bring you my guest today. Her name is Anna Carroll of Everyday Feedback. At the age of 40, Anna decided to start her own company, and what she has built has been absolutely incredible. She's a consultant who works with companies like IBM in doing internal team training and leadership training, all about communication, and her area of expertise is really in feedback. So she helps companies really understand internally how building a culture that enables people to give feedback and communicate with one another very openly is very powerful for the company, very powerful for the company's bottom line. She has a great story and I can't wait for you to hear it. Let's get going. Anna, what's going on, girl? Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Yeah. You are an Austin girl, and I got to tell you right off the bat that I'm a huge fan of Austin. How long have you lived there? 25 years. (laughs) Wow. Okay. So you know it a little bit, right? (laughs) I do, yeah. It's gotten very strange lately. It's way bigger and way more crowded, but fun, always. How neat. You've had your business there that whole time, right? Yes, I have. Wow. That's incredible. My Austin story is that my husband and I every year drive from Tampa, Florida to Arizona because my family's out there and we drive out there for Christmas. And this year we stopped in Austin for like a day or two and just hung out and I'm vegan. And they ended up having like the best vegan food I've ever had. It was really good. Oh, I'm so happy. They're a cool little foodie town, right? Yes. We're lots of music, lots of fun, lots of craziness. The slogan is keep Austin weird. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's so cool. (laughs) Well, I'm really, really excited to have you on the show because I think the consulting business that you have really built up is very respectable and there's an entire model behind it, an entire story behind it. And I'm really excited to get behind the scenes as to how you've done that. But why don't you start by telling me what's some of your professional background? You didn't really even get into your company until you were about 40 years old. So what were you doing before? What were some of your professional experiences? Well, before I started my company at age 40, uh, I worked in consulting business that was international and a little bit related to some of the leadership development that I do now. But before that, it's so interesting because I was a social worker, and before that, I was a math teacher. So I started out when I graduated from college at Sarah Lawrence College. I was always interested in multiple topics, like almost everybody who goes there, liberal arts college is. And I took math, I was interested in science, math, and also writing, and also psychology was a big topic for me. And so I decided to, in my 20s, just after I had my kids, I became a math teacher and taught in the Austin Independent School District. I really loved that. And while I did that, I also was a sponsor of Human Relations Committee, where we ran small groups of teenagers, and they talked about all kinds of personal issues, and we ran retreats, and it was really fun. And I was also the sponsor of Texas Future Problem Solvers, where people were kind of in a think tank and kind of projecting the future. I really loved that kind of facilitation role. So I decided to go to the School of Social Work so I could become a kind of counselor, facilitator, do group work, maybe run therapy groups. 
And so while I was still teaching, I taught half-time, and I got my Master's of Science in Social Work. And while I was in the School of Social Work, I met the dean of the Social Work Department at the University of Texas, where I was in school. And she was a psychologist and a management consultant part-time and knew a couple of people who had started a international consulting business. And Robert Blake and Jane Mouton, both of them, unfortunately, passed away by now, but they were applied social psychologists and did some fascinating studies about how people behave in groups and how leadership is impacted by conformity and group dynamics. So I took my internship, my second internship, while I was in the School of Social Work, my last internship, at working for Bob Blake and Jane Mouton at Scientific Methods, and I worked there for six years. After my internship, they hired me as a full-time person in charge of first designing kind of some of the training that we offered, and then as an actual account manager working with key clients. We had Merck, we had the Time Westinghouse, we had lots of just people all over the world. I, I got to travel quite a bit to Wales and work with major corporations. And I, from Austin, Texas, I work with East Coast clients. It was really interesting because we were just kind of offering consulting, organization development was what they really specialized in. And I did work there for six years. And then I sort of felt that I had done my kind of doctoral study there and was yeah, ready really. to branch out on my <laughs> six years that I wanted to branch out on my own. So in 1989, I formed a corporation. And then in 1990, when I was 40, I turned 40 in November of <laughs> year. So in January 1, I went out and opened the doors as Interaction Design, Inc. I had no business plan. <laughs> <laughs> you would not believe and how often I hear that, by the way. <laughs> is that common? Yeah, very, very common. I just had the instinct not to focus on, like, a big office. I think I, had a little, I did have a little office, just one room as a larger in part of a lot, somebody's larger office. I did have business cards made, but, I mean, that was just really quick design. By the way, we still have the same, basically, design. Well, just changed it with the feedback, actually. So it, all these many years it's taken to change my design. But didn't spend much time worrying about stationery or invoices or anything, just had an instinct that customers were all important. And I also had a strong ethical feeling that I did not want to. I was on friendly terms with everybody there. I told them why I wanted to leave. I wanted to kind of focus on customized training and not offering, not selling prepackaged stuff and also on organization development that I had kind of developed. Let me dig into a few of those things that you had said there already. So I definitely kind of want to dig into maybe a lesson or two that you learned as a teacher, because I think that so much of how you are right now probably has a lot to do with these accumulated lessons. So give me a little lesson that you learned just from being a math teacher for so long, because that's really interesting. Well, one thing I adored teenagers and math teaching, and the kids were just always so fun. I think I got tired of it eventually just because it's such a, basically the, the administration sort of treats everybody equally, and every single teacher has 30 kids in the class, or 20, 20 kids in the class, however many. And then if people complain about some of the teachers aren't good, they put them in, say, a teacher that they think is good. And I happen to be inherit a lot of the kids, so I always had like close to 30 or 35 kids because the parents complained for other teachers they would bring them into my class. And there was no feedback. My book is on feedback. If there was no feedback whatsoever, good or bad, when you were a teacher, the kids were fabulous, fabulous training. If anybody wants to be uh, – have training for becoming any kind of speaker or trainer, teaching's fabulous because you have, say, five or six classes you're teaching a day, say five or four, 
And every class is a new world. So the next hour, if you didn't feel like you taught a particular lesson well and you had the same class topics that you're going to be teaching again in the day, you had another chance to start over. Next day is a new day, and you had an audience all day, every day. So and they had they also, to stay there. <laughs> they, they were, yeah, they had to stay there. And teenagers are so much fun. I mean, they're so – talk about feedback. Bill, Miss Carol, you gained a little weight over Christmas vacation. Come on. And actually, and actually I was pregnant. No way. So, or they would, you know, you're slip showing. That's a really, did you get a new red top? And blah. So they're going to tell you if you sucked, basically. <laughs> exactly. So there's no holes barred. There's no filtering. And so it's really great training because you get that kind of feedback constantly. And also it helps you improvise. There were many, many fabulous adventures I had that were like really scary sometimes and wonderful in others. And they're just the absolute best training you could have. So that was fun. Now, what about your experience working with the consulting practice for that six years? Because there had to be so many foundational things that you took from that to be able to feel confident enough to step off and do your own thing. So what was that experience really like? Like what kind of things were you learning that actually had practical application to your business now? So many things. First of all, I loved the field they were in, which is organization development, which is basically working at the level of the group rather than individuals. And we just got involved in a lot of fascinating projects. One of them that, that's really made a huge impression, and I talked about it in the process of my book, was the impact of organization development and the great advances that were brought on, and particularly from the two people I worked for. They were like, critical in that area with airplane pilots in the cockpit. NASA at the time had shown that 60 to 80% of the fatal accidents that occurred in air crashes occurred because it was a human issue, human error, resource management issue. Someone in the cockpit had access to information that was not applied. And so many times it was kind of an authority issue. The captain wanted to do one thing and everybody else just shut up and followed suit and didn't ask questions. Or somebody on the ground was trying to tell them something and weren't listening. So it was some kind of a human interaction problem. And that is so common in everyday problems that we have, poor decisions that are made. Actually, a very small percent of planes crash, as everyone knows. So that's just a super small amount of occurrences. However, if you look at it in the cockpit and then look at it in, say, multi-billion dollar decisions that businesses are making, very often the poor decision making, say around, we want to build a new building in... Boise or New York or whatever, and then it's sometimes it's political, sometimes the people who know better aren't speaking up. So uh, it has to do with the way the group's interacting. And so that had a huge impression on me. I love that work and how to make the changes in companies had to do with making change on the group level and bringing those issues out and having the group address it together, set up new norms and new standards and new ground rules for how they want to operate. That is basically still how I operate today. So I, I got to work with that a lot. I got to consult with a lot of companies and work with a lot of senior leadership teams. I got to do a lot of leadership training that dealt with that issue and highlighted it. So I really benefited greatly. There were some fascinating things that occurred for me. One of them was that I found myself in boardrooms and in training people often who were all male groups. So I'd go in, I was the only woman, lead sometimes a leadership development session, sometimes a public seminar, and there were like maybe one woman out of 27 people at the session. Other times there were half and half, and in some like agencies that we worked with, several agencies, they might be a little closer to half and half, or sometimes even more women. A lot of the time I was working with all men, or I was on a team sometimes in doing some of the training myself when I was in a team 
with all men and in a position of like six men and me and noting how positive in some ways I really appreciated things about the way kind of stereotypical ways that men work I learned some things that I've incorporated in my own business practices so I focused on the positive what I really want to ask you that's kind of like bugging around in my mind is that you have this history of studying organizational leadership and communication and interaction and then in the practice and now in the practice that you have now and definitely in the practice that you were part of before, you were actually implementing these things. How have you seen that actually work in your life? Right now you've been in your business, you've had a staff of up to eight. I mean, you have always had at least one person with you, but how have you really experienced the stuff that you've practiced and actually implement for other people? That's so great. I really believe in group communication, and I learned sort of the hard way by not knowing it, then learning it with working with people, and learning my own, any, any group that I'm with, or leading a team of people working on a project. I've learned to regularly check in with everybody and include everybody on the memos, on the meetings, over-communicate, like if we're having issues, make sure that we're communicating with the whole group so that the whole group's aware and we can sort of form a group we're walking along together that, that path and we're able to make adjustments along the way. So feedback is one area, and of course I've written, that's my latest passion, but just a lot, like over-communicate with the, on the group level is one of the big lessons. Another level, the two biggest things for leaders, I would say, are the two biggest areas that I see where companies have problems and have solutions are two things. One, clarity of the goals. How clear are the goals and how clear are the priorities and how clear how aligned is everybody in the organization to those goals and priorities. That often means generating some healthy arguments and conflict even. So to really understand, there's got to be a whole lot of shaking going on if people understand the goals. So we've got to really clarify those and kind of push against them and make sure everybody understands. And then the goals is one, and the other is feedback or honest communication, candid communication. So and that's feedback. If there's an issue, we bring it up, we face it, we deal with it openly. Those two areas are ones I still have a lot of room to grow a lot in my own leadership in those areas. What do you think your particular leadership style is? Well, in the feedback, I, I'm a cheerleader of the feedback book. We have four styles, four feedback zones, and they're kind of union. These are ones that you guys are going to recognize. They have aspects of the Myers-Briggs, some extrovert, introvert, feeler, thinker, and I'm the extrovert thinker, interestingly enough. I think I have a lot of feelings going for me, but... What does that mean? Like, how do you interact with your team over these years? I'm, a cusp, I'm probably between the sort of feeler and thinker, and then I'm definitely the extrovert. So the way it goes is there's strengths and weaknesses. The piece of it that can be kind of charging, I have it as a charger style, it can be in control, trying to like make things happen, in a hurry, impatient. Impatient would be one of my flaws in one of my <laughs> styles. And then another one is, it also can work sometimes. The other, in the cheerleader style, I'm very enthusiastic, happy, fat, passionate, positive, but it can sometimes in that rush to lead the group and praise everybody and I can not focus on the details enough. Mm. So I am not the sort of introverted analytical style. That's the opposite style of mine. My husband's a computer programmer. He is like the quiet, extremely quiet, extremely meticulous detail person who doesn't particularly want to initiate a lot of conversation with a lot of people unless he really feels the need to. So <laughs> uh, enthusiastic is good. Passionate is good. I'm a good communicator, but can sometimes be inconsistent or 
and then um, in the charging cell impatient. So when you made the transition to the consulting company that you worked for to doing things on your own, how hard was that? Did you have any trepidation about that? Were you fairly confident because you had been doing it for a while? Like what was kind of your mental and emotional state during that time? And how did you really move forward with actually acquiring clients? But first of all, I wanted to just explain something real quickly that I was about to explain, which is my ethical thing. I really wanted to, to start out on my own. I was absolutely felt strong. No one even asked me to do this, but to not call clients I had. I mean, I had a million connections, but I did not want to call my old clients because they belonged to the company I'd worked for before, and I just felt like it was wrong to do that. So what I did was I had a friend who worked at IBM, and I told a lot of my friends in business, my professional network, about what I was going to be doing. I decided about that, and I felt that the key was to have some customers in mind. So I had a couple of customers lined up. Kind of like your wish list? Yeah, a couple of people that I had call me when you quit, when you do this. Um, so I gave notice, and I had to be set up after that. So my feeling was excitement, exhilaration, my vision. I had a strong vision of how I wanted to work with people. And but in some ways, I was clueless. There was some trepidation. So it was excitement and trepidation. Probably maybe 51% excitement and confidence and 49% total abject fear. And that extra 1% is what made you keep on going with it, right? <laughs> 1%, yeah, it kept going. And I also knew, okay, I'm 40. There was that sense that I'm 40. I want to make this happen. I've always wanted to do things, have my vision, I wanted to work with people. And now's the time to do this. So there's a feeling of, okay, I could later, I think, get another job somehow, some way. I didn't ever think of going back to the other company. So I just felt like I've moved on. It's not fair to them. Bring me, want to take me back. But I became, I stayed friends with them. So I, my first client was IBM because a friend of mine worked at IBM and I worked, I did a project for them, at this, designing something for a user group using these principles. And another piece of good luck was another friend, colleague, whom I'm still friends with and has been recent work with actually. I had met him at a large conference, GE Technical Leadership, and I was doing one set of things for them, and he was doing something else. But then he had a, he put me on to a major project. GE was doing this workout process that was a, a total quality, kind of a Kaizen approach to large-scale improvement. So I became a workout facilitator from that. So through two contacts that were personal. So I guess the takeaway here, the contacts that I used to start my business were not direct clients of my other company that I had had in my other company. I used my personal professional network to explain what I was interested in doing, and then they kind of gave me some leads that happened to work out for me, and I kind of built from there. I think one of the probably biggest great things and challenges for somebody who is a consultant is the sort of the revenue model, because I, I would imagine that your revenue model, at least back then, was client hires me for project, they pay me X amount of dollars for the scope of that project, and then I'm done with the project, and now I need to go get more clients. Is that how you worked back then? Is that how you work now? And what are some of the drawbacks to that? Well, it's, it, it was, you know, I worked a lot. Okay, these cool clients, it's all going to work out. And I learned a couple of lessons. One is that one of the big clients, and so this is true for the bigger the client sometimes in huge multinational corporations, they don't really pay small vendors on time necessarily. They don't pay and them so on time? Is that what you said? The bigger the project, the bigger the client, and the bigger the project, the higher the likelihood that you're going to be spending a lot of money before you're actually paid because there are two reasons. One is you're going to be, if it's a big project, you might need to incur a lot of costs. You might need to bring somebody else in. You might need to hire a more recent project with a big company. I hired a person who did visual recording, and so I had to pay her, her travel, and then the client was paying me. So you have you might incur a lot of costs. You might have to travel far. You're going to be putting that on your credit card. So you're a new 
I was an entrepreneur then, I'm brand new. So I was, all of a sudden I had like $20,000 charged on my American Express card oh my gosh. For, for, <laughs> for different kinds of expenses. And so then the bigger the client, they have practices of, and most people aren't really aware of this, but it's a lot of people about you listening who work for bigger companies or medium-sized companies might know that it sometimes they have practice, they have account payable practices where they particularly more in the last 10 years push them back so that they're not going to pay any vendor, but small vendor into 60 days, sometimes 90 days. Wow. Some of the policy where they need you to produce lots of documentation and dot every I, cross every T. So then 60 days later, you're asking, well, I'm checking on this invoice and they're like, well, you never signed this in Yes, and blah, blah, blah. And that's partly, I think, maybe sometimes convenient because then the more you can push back the accounts, the more, the more they can hold the money. It's not the individual fault. It's just a corporate practice, basically. So sometimes being a small vendor, it's really important to understand the terms of when you're going to get paid are very important. That took me a long time to try to ask ahead of time, when am I going to get paid? Well, and that's so interesting because at least just planning for that and being aware of that, and especially as a new business owner, I mean, that's something that you really kind of definitely have to plan for. Now, being so seasoned, I would imagine that you kind of have a pipeline built on a regular basis. Can you give some advice to anyone who is a consultant and is managing multiple projects, multiple clients, also trying to kind of get out there and market themselves and make sure that they have people in the future pipeline, what best practices have you used that have worked really well for you to manage your pipeline? I've not done it that. That's one of my vulnerabilities. I still don't do it that well, and so. But I would highly recommend it. And I think people, of course, one obvious one is keeping up your network. Make sure you're in touch with everybody, and don't just wait until you know you finish the project or something falls through, or a date gets slipped. Like, oh, we don't have the money this year to do it or this quarter. We're going to push it back three months or six months. That happens very frequently. So you sort of plan to have this revenue coming in, and it didn't quite work. So the pipeline is absolutely a critical idea, and that's where I probably had some ups and downs in my business where I was so busy at the time, I was really, really busy, and I was just busy working and working with other consultants to do something, and then all of a sudden, you don't have this big money coming in. In fact, you've had big expenses occur, you pay everybody off, and you have that much money left, and then it's time to get some more business, but the business can't be developed that quickly sometimes. So I think the pipeline idea is great. I think one thing to do is if you're working primarily for one client or you have, say, a few clients that are basically all your work, Really try to stay ahead of understanding the trends with those companies or those clients and making sure that you know they're in a change process. Sometimes companies are in a quiet period. They're about to be acquired or acquire somebody else, and there's reasons why they're not spending any money. They're in a freeze. They don't have any money for what you're doing, and so that's going to happen in the cycles. It's good to be aware of your current clients, where they are. It's also for the pipeline, it's really important to pursue, spend some time, allocate some time, spend some extra time, hate to say it, before hour, after hours, developing ideas for a new project that you might want to do. I'm not that expert at it. I need help in that area. Yeah. Well, <laughs> to be honest with you, just about every consultant or coach that I've ever talked to, that's like the biggest pain point is managing the pipeline. I mean, many of them have actually switched into a like a retainer model, but even that, you never know how long the retainer is going to last or it may be a year-long retainer, but that in and of itself is sort of like a pipeline you need to manage. So, I, I mean, I think it's a very huge pain point for just about any kind of project base or service-based business. Yes, 
I, I've done that exact thing on the retainer thing. Oh, here's a good idea. You have a couple of bed and bread and butter people, and you give them, you just work a deal, and you offer them a deal where it's, it's pretty low cost for them. And you know, it's not the most lucrative thing for you, except that it pays regularly. So you might have some people, some clients you really enjoy working with, and you just say, look, you know, I want like, to have you as sort of like a special star client and somebody that I want to give a great partnership, give you guys a great deal in exchange. And I have done that quite a bit, where I have X number of 20 consulting days as a package, and it's like maybe half or even less than half of what I would normally charge. But it's golden because it does pay on a bigger race. So I would say that's a great idea. Start loving sales. When you mention people not really want, just their least favorite thing or their, their biggest problem is just trying to get business. They don't want to spend time doing that. You know, they love their coaching. I would say, how can we step into loving sales? Salespeople, I just worked with some salespeople last week, actually, sales team leaders. Salespeople are usually extroverts. And, but they're special kind of people because they really like selling. And I think most of the experts maybe that you're referring to or some, certainly me, I, I never liked marketing or sales. We just kind of dread it and think of it as kind of creepy to like sort of push people. We think of it as like pushing <laughs> things on people and like asking them to sign up for stuff that, that if they really wanted it, they would have already asked me. Right. right. <laughs> so I think to really reframe the way we think, we're offering something, we're consulting with them, we're offering solutions. They're asking, they've got the issues that they want addressed. They know what those are. So I think if to, what even say to the extent of reading great books on sales and marketing and even attending some sales training. I think that sales is just something, a few people love it, and the people who don't love it hate it. <laughs> So I want to get to kind of where you are now and you really kind of niche down your focus from kind of general organizational communication and strategy and now you really are niche down into everyday feedback and really sort of being this person who talks about feedback, helps people with feedback. I mean, you're still doing your general consulting, but you're really branding yourself as a person who knows this piece of information very, very well. And just as a brief overview, can you give us sort of the foundational concepts that you're really out there branding yourself with? Yes, absolutely. And it came out of kind of one of these questions about your whole, where are you? What kind of life decision is this? My husband of 25 years passed away of leukemia. And I had a lot of time to myself. I was doing some work kind of at a distance on my computer and talking and stuff, but he was sick over three years. So I was in and out of that. And He's hospitalized 30 times. So I had a lot of time. I was spending a lot of time with him every day, basically. So I had time to kind of like reflect on my business. And that was between 2005 and 2008. And I asked myself, what is the most important thing that I've learned from all the consulting that I've done? And the number one issue that I thought of was, hey, at every company I go into, there's a, a communication problem of some sort. And so I wanted to focus on that. And I realized that since I really loved dealing with the issue of feedback and what are the barriers to feedback, that that would be the thing I would focus on. So if we could get better feedback flowing in organizations, that would be something that could offer a huge benefit to every organization I can think of. So that's why I focus specifically on feedback, and I decided of the world of feedback, you could have feedback to husbands and wives, you could have feedback in any organization from employee to employee to from employee to manager. I felt that since leaders have, as part of their job role, the job of giving feedback. And no human beings are very good at it. We would focus, and they're not very good at it. Leaders are typically not. 
and myself included sometimes. So we could really help leaders by really focusing on the giving of feedback. So a lot of people ask me about 360 and about giving your leaders feedback. And I've said, yeah, that's important. I'm interested in it. But I'm really obsessed about how to get leaders to spend a lot more time, I call it everyday feedback, coaching people, giving them feedback, giving them positive reinforcement, affirmative feedback, giving them corrective feedback or constructive criticism, but just making it a culture where feedback is welcome. I'm wanting feedback back from you in exchange if I'm the leader and having it them expect it. And then it there was a confluence of some trends going on. One has to do with younger workers who are much more used to the stream of information coming in. I call them information babies. It's some Gen Y and younger and a little older as well. But in people who are, can call up information, that's how they've grown up. They have information from everywhere except their manager. They do not know what management thinks. And they're very, very unhappy. And it's a huge showstopper for them to have their manager not give them helpful feedback on a regular basis. And they want it. They want, they want quote, quote, unquote, negative feedback. That's what I'm studying now. I mean, there are a lot of studies that show that people want, 60% of workers want more negative. And they don't mean negative, negative. Like, they mean like constructive. Constructive criticism, yes. And that's, but they even use that word sometimes in the studies. In other words, let's make it really clear. We're not just talking out of boys or out of girls. We're talking that people want to know. Like, don't wait till the end of the year to say, well, you're pretty good at these areas, but, you know, you're not that great at so-and-so. And then they're like, why didn't you tell me? Right, right, right. My question for you as a businesswoman who has decided to kind of niche down in this area and brand yourself with that niche is what have been the pros and cons of doing that? Because my mind goes to – Wow. Okay. If somebody's not interested in feedback, they're not going to get the rest of you. They're not going to. They're not going to see you for all of the other things that you really do. Even though feedback is a great leader into being able to open up so much more potential for clients that you have. So, what have been some of the pros and cons of niching yourself down? You raise some great points, and there are some cons because you know you're trying to get your brand communicated, trying to like a social media, and I renamed my website Everyday Feedback. And I'm blogging on everyday feedback. And before that, I was blogging some more on leadership coaching and some on organization development. So, I mean, you raised a good point. I think those are some of the cons where you're like all over the map. And the truth is I am kind of a renaissance would be the polite way of saying it, but like scattered maybe. I have so many interests within the field of organization development even. So the, the negative is that somebody want to do something else with you that you're perfectly capable of doing wouldn't find you. And I think that's going to be a huge, but if we brand ourselves and really go for the sweet spot of our passion and also something that people recognize as a real business issue, my feeling is that as hard as it is to choose that thing, the work will come to you if you're really good at what you do and you can communicate what you can do, how you can help them. And it's a real help to the universe to to be able to do that. So I think you'll lose some potential business, but you'll gain business in areas that you really adore. And the thrill and sort of transformational point for me has been, this is the first time when people are coming to me to do something that I initiated as a topic. But yeah, I became passionate about this feedback topic. I'm doing research in it and people are interested in that topic. And so there's a better match between what people are looking for and what I'm just fascinated to be doing right now. 
Oh, I love that. That's a really good perspective. So, like, you get to define it. And, that's right. yeah, everybody's got a little different name. You go in and you find it actually with the feedback, there's some other stuff going on that you can't bring. But basically, there's a new level of focus. Well, Anna, you have your book out, The Feedback Imperative, How to Give Everyday Feedback to Speed Up Your Team's Success. And um, where can people go to get more information about that? Okay. Well, my website is everydayfeedback.com. And so I have some blogs and other things there. And the book, The Feedback Imperative, is available through my website as well. And I have blogs and tweets and all these other things. So talk to me anytime. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Anna. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. bizwomenrock.com forward slash 93 is where you will find all the links to all the information for Anna as well as a link to her book. You should definitely check it out. Thanks so much for being on the show today and I'll see you on the next episode.